Warning, today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. to Then Is Now podcast. I'm your host, Rigor. In this series of special Then Is Now episodes, 13 Days of Hallowtober, we're exploring what are widely regarded as the scariest movies of all time. Joining me today is filmmaker Joe Lemieux. Joe has directed Creeping Paralysis, Veil of Blood, and co-written and produced the romantic comedy The Stoop, and is currently producing a TV show called The Other Side of Midnight with Leanne Rubin as horror hostess Ursula Grimsworth. Hello, Joe. What do you know? Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. We're glad to have you. So let's um let's I'm gonna give a brief synopsis of the film first and then we'll dive into it. Today's film is, of course, The Exorcist from nineteen seventy three. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world, the world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it, and nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! One hope, the only hope, the exorcist. Lancaster Merrin, a veteran Catholic priest who performed an exorcism in the 1950s, is on an archaeological dig in the ancient city of Hatra in Iraq. There, he finds an amulet that resembles Pazuzu, a demon of ancient origins with whose story Merrin is familiar. In Georgetown, actress Chris McNeil is living on location with her 12-year-old daughter, Reagan. She is starring in a film about student activism directed by her friend and associate, Burke Dennings. 
After playing with a Ouija board and contacting a supposedly imaginary friend whom she calls Captain Howdy, Reagan begins acting strangely, using obscene language and exhibiting abnormal strength. Additionally, there is poltergeist-like activity in the home at night. Chris hosts a party during which Reagan comes downstairs unannounced, tells one of the guests, an astronaut, that he will die up there, and then urinates on the floor. Later, Reagan's bed begins to shake violently, further adding to her mother's horror. Chris consults a number of physicians, but Dr. Klein and his associates find nothing physiologically wrong with her daughter, despite Reagan undergoing a battery of diagnostic tests. One night, when Chris is out, Burke Dennings is babysitting a heavily sedated Reagan. Chris returns to hear that he has died falling out of the window. Although this is assumed to have been an accident, given Burke's history of heavy drinking, his death is investigated by Lieutenant William Kinderman. Kinderman interviews Chris. He also consults psychiatrist Father Damien Karras, a Jesuit priest struggling with his own faith, which only worsens after the death of his frail mother. After examining Reagan and through a series of incidents, Karras believes he has enough proof to convince the Catholic Church to authorize an exorcism. The Archbishop calls in Father Merrin for help, and the two priests must battle the demonic force within Reagan in order to save the girl's life. So, Joe, uh, when did you first see this, and what is what was your initial impression of the movie? Uh, I think the first time I saw it was actually as a kid. Like, I mean, back then, you, kids were not not allowed to watch stuff, no matter what it was rated back then. Like, I don't think my parents really um, watched over us as far as like where we could watch our movies. Maybe my sisters subjected me me to it because they freaked the shit out of me. So. Um, <laughs> but I do, but I do remember the book being in the house always. So, um, oh, interesting. So, and, and it's a funny story because my mom read the book and knew how scary the book was. I mean, I don't know how close the book is to the uh, the movie, um, but she forbid one of my sisters from seeing the movie. And my sister, being a teenager, uh, I think she was maybe seventeen or sixteen at the time. Um, saw it, I had a nightmare, and my mom went in the room. like, "You saw it, didn't you?" It's like, "I did, I did." It's like, "You can punish me where you want." It's like, "Please let me sleep with the lights off." Like, "No, the lights are turned off. We don't work for General Electric." <laughs> so, that's great. But I, I remember, I remember, I was really young when I saw it. So. Yeah, my parents always took me to rated R movies, particularly horror movies. Um, I think I've told this story several times on the show here. My very first movie, and I remember this vividly, age two, 1972, in the backseat of the car at the drive-in. My first movie was Asylum, the anthology Amicus film with Peter Cushing and oh, Herbert wow. Lom. And for years, my mother and I had forgotten the name of the film, and we called it Chopping Heads because we couldn't remember the name of the film. <laughs> that is a good one, too. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good one. I'll have to cover that at some point. But surprisingly, I did not see The Exorcist in the movies. Um, but I believe when it was on a world premiere, like on one of the big three networks, mm -hmm. my parents and I snuggled up in the parlor to watch it. And <laughs> I remember getting to the end of the Father Merrin scene at the beginning when he's in Iraq. And then I just ran out of the room and to my bedroom. And I was like, yeah, I'm not watching that. <laughs> well, well, for me, just its reputation alone. Yeah, yeah, like what? For me, at today, I can only watch it in the daytime, and yeah, and I and I make horror films, and I love horror movies. Um, <laughs> and, it, and but for me, it always felt like uh, like Catholic guilt, like like I'm I'm seeing stuff I'm not supposed to see, 
Uh, right, I'm, right. I'm not, yeah, I'm not even Catholic, too. so. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, I know. That's so funny. There's, there's a big conundrum right there. Um, I think that's one thing about this film. You know, I went to Catholic school my whole life, and I, I really think that it, it was part of that whole satanic panic that was going on in the 70s, and it just preyed on... Because back then, I think most people, to a degree, were religious. Mm-hmm. And so it just preyed on those fears that the religion had sort of, you know, beat into us. Yeah. And, and of course, it's like a blockbuster back then, right? So it's like when the first horror films became a blockbuster, other than Jaws, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, Although Psycho was nominated for like three or four Academy Awards, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 13 years before that. But um, yeah, so I didn't see this uh, in full until my late teens, and then what what struck me about the movie was the end. I loved the ending so much; it just blew me away. I ended up buying it on VHS and DVD, and I have it on all different formats now. Let's get into the cast and the crew a little bit here. So, director, uh, the director of the film is William Friedkin, and some of his most notable films are The French Connection with Gene Hackman, Sorcerer, The Brinks Job, which, by the way, a little bit of trivia here, when they filmed The Brinks Job, they came to my hometown of Stoneham, Massachusetts, back in 1977 to film a couple of scenes. Oh. And I remember I remember walking downtown with my mother to, to watch them film. And, of course, when we went and saw the movie, there was, like, a two-second shot of a car pulling up through Stoneham Square, and that was it. Oh. <laughs> That's cool. Um, but he more recently, Friedkin directed a movie called The Devil and Father Amorth in 2017. Now, I, I've only heard a little bit about this. I would like to see this, but apparently it's a documentary where he filmed an actual exorcism, and the priest doing it would only let him in with his camera. No crew, no nothing. Oh, wow. So uh, that one I'm, I'm really curious to see, The yeah. Devil and Father Amorth. That looks really good. At least he's still working. <laughs> Oh, exactly, yeah, and I think he's pretty old, too. Yeah, like they, we said in the 70s. Same thing with um, William Peter Blatty, who he wrote the novel that this movie was based on, and he also wrote the screenplay, so I would imagine, even though I haven't read the book myself either, I would imagine the movie is probably fairly close to the book. Yeah, I um, mean... Considering we the author. The Legion, Exorcist 3 as well, and directed it. That's right, yep. Yep, and uh, his screenwriting credits include, surprisingly, the Inspector Clouseau movie, A Shot in the Dark, oh, which I, wow. I did not know that. <laughs> um, Promise Her Anything, The Ninth Configuration. Oh, that's an amazing and he movie, also, too. Yeah. The Ninth Configuration, I couldn't tell you what the plot was. Oh, I know. It was something about a, it was like an asylum or something. Yeah. I just remember Stacey Keach was in it. Yeah. Uh, but Blatty is- also wrote Exorcist two and three, and as you said, um, he, he well he ex- he directed three. He also wrote Exorcist: The Beginning from two thousand and four, which I've never seen. That I had to look that one up. It's about it's uh, Stellan Skarsgård there from the Marvel movies. He plays a young Father Merrin, yep. and it's about his his initial encounters with Pazuzu. Yeah, I saw the um, the one actually that's a. Um, the second version of it, Paul Schrader did the first version. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and shot it, fully shot it, and the studio hated it, so they got Blighty to come in and do a second one. Do oh, the, interesting. So that do, do the whole movie over again. So that's which movie is that then? Uh, it's called Dominion. Oh, interesting. Which is actually the Exorcist prequel that was never really released. It was released on DVD, but on 
Wow, I had no idea. Dominion, we'll have to look that one up. If anyone is out there has seen Dominion, write into us and let us know what you thought about the movie. Okay, so with the cast, we've got Ellen Burstyn as the mom, Chris McNeil. And she'd been in quite a few movies, including The Last Picture Show, Alice mm-hmm. Doesn't Live Here Anymore. She even had her own TV series, The Short-Lived Ellen Burstyn Show. But it wasn't until 2000, the year 2000, 27 years after The Exorcist, that she was back on the map with the Academy Award-nominated Requiem for a Dream, in which she gave a stellar performance that got rave reviews. And I, I think she did a stellar performance here in The Exorcist. I really believed her character. I mean, she was yeah, looking... Yeah, for her. Yeah, she was looking horrible by the you know the last third of the movie. <laughs> but even like where no one would believe her, and she's like, like swearing like a mofo, and like it's like I don't care what you're doing. And she turns right. to the the young priest there for help, and and he was trying to convince her. It's like most people don't do exorcisms anymore. <laughs> Right, right. The majority of people do are, are lying. Well, and I was telling my wife, we, we watched it last night, and um, I was telling her that I've read in the last couple of years the number of exorcists have gone up in, up to, there's like 300 now in the Catholic Church. They've been training more and more exorcists. Mm-hmm. So it's been increasing lately, which is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Ellen Burson did a great job here, I thought. Um, I thought her and... Uh, Linda Blair as Reagan. I thought they had good chemistry on screen. I, I believed they were mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay, speaking of Linda Blair, she plays Reagan McNeil. And after this, uh, this was a breakout role for her. Obviously, it was like I think there was a lot of horror, not just from the movie itself, but from critics who were horrified that a child was going to be doing what her character did in the movie. Oh yeah. Oh. Um, and, you know, it's just the crucifix and uh, just the swearing and puking everywhere. It was really, crucifix. yeah, it's like not even, she was, she was practically stabbing herself with it. Yeah. But uh, there's, there's an interesting story about um, the Ellen Burson, uh, the scene where she gets slapped and knocked to the floor. Do you know how they did that? No. Um they had a, a rope tied around her waist. It went through the set, and on the other side of the set were a bunch of teamsters pulling on the rope. And yeah. she recently had back surgery, and she told uh, Billy Freakin to don't oh, pull too hard. So what he did is yeah. he put another three teamsters on the rope and told them to pull as hard as they could. So yeah. the reaction on her face is because they hurt her <laughs> by pulling her to the floor. Oh, so when, and when she got up, was able to get off, the floor she went over and she punched billy freakin in the face oh wow yeah oh, um, my God. but you got the reaction so that's crazy yeah yeah hopefully you didn't thankfully he didn't paralyze her jesus christ no i know so <laughs> well, it was a nice so, you ab- could do shit like that back then yeah that's true you could get away with it like slapping kids to get them to cry on camera mm-hmm. and stuff. yeah <laughs> now, after The Exorcist, uh, Linda Blair was in several movies, including Born Innocent, Airport 1975, Sarah T., Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, and she reprised her role as Reagan in Exorcist II, The Heretic. She was also in a couple of fun um, horror flicks. She was in Hell Night and Grotesque, as well as a movie called Chained Heat, and she had a cameo in the first Scream film. And she's still out there. She's still doing stuff. She's still looking mm-hmm. great. I, In fact, I interviewed her one time many, many years ago when she was at a place called Spooky World in Massachusetts. 
and uh, she was just the the nicest thing ever. I I really liked her. That's cool. Yeah, I never met, I've never met her. So she puts on a great performance here for especially for was she twelve I think in this, and uh, it's it just horrific to think. I mean, what must her parents have thought when they were making this movie? Who knows? It, again, it's the seventies. It might have been boozing it up and like just happy their daughter's making some money too. So yeah, know. that's true. <laughs> So Jason Miller played Father Damien Karras, um, and he was in a bunch of smaller films, including uh, Friedkin's The Ninth Configuration. But ironically, I happened to catch him recently. I was watching a uh, Grindhouse film from 1977 called A Dog Called Vengeance, which was this crazy film in which Miller, he's this uh, prisoner in a South American dictatorship, and he manages to escape. But through the whole movie, he's pursued by this bloodthirsty hound. And it was, I'm I'm watching it going, I know that guy, I know that guy. And then finally I looked it up, I'm like, oh my God, it's Father Karras. <laughs> <laughs> and he was also uh, Exorcist 3 as well. Yes, yes, he had a good part in Exorcist 3. Um, then we have, of course, Max von Sydow, who plays Father Merrin. You know, I think we could do a whole show about von Sydow's <laughs> career. Yeah, like, he, he looked old in The Exorcist, and he... I don't think he really was that old. I mean, he. No, they made him look old. That was makeup. He yeah, was well, young, but now he looks. Right. He yeah, and now he looks, or at least in recent years, he looked like he did in The Exorcist. No, I know. He really was old. Like, wow, <laughs> he, he ages properly for his career. But yes, it was Dick Smith, and we'll get into that in a little bit here. But some of the highlights from Von Sydow's career, and this is just scratching the surface here. He played Ming the Merciless in Flash Gordon. He was in Conan the Barbarian. Uh, he was in Strange Brew with Bob and Doug McKenzie. He was Blofeld. He played Blofeld in Never Say Never Again. He was in the movie Dreamscape. Um, he was in the, the original Judge Dredd movie with Sylvester Stallone. He was in Minority Report, and the list just goes on and on, and um, sadly we lost him this year at age 90. Wow. Yeah, I can't believe he was 90 That's years. Real. A lot of people are getting up there in age, too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think he was he was would you consider him more of a character actor than a leading man? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean he's yeah. I mean he, he's not like a Dick Miller, but kind of like in between, right, right. I guess. Yeah. because yeah, I mean he's kind of he is the exorcist in this movie and his performance in this film is great. It's like when you're watching it and then, you know, they they kind of been building all these little different pieces here and there, pulling them together as the mother's trying to figure out what to do. In fact, the doctors even suggest an exorcism, although they at first you're like, whoa, that's pretty cool that they're, you know, it's beyond them. They consider an exorcism the next level. But then they're like, oh, no, it's for psychological purposes, because maybe if she thinks she's possessed, then she'll think she's cured from the exorcism. And I think I think for him, it's. It, he's conquering something that's been fought before because he's he's seen this in the desert. So, right, and they said he had he had performed an exorcist in the fifties, and it took a month to get to um, fix to help the kid that it had happened to, that had been possessed. I should say. And there's also that scene where he finds that uh, medallion on the archaeological dig. That's the same medallion that's worn around the other priest's neck. Yeah, I wondered about that, and I wondered if that, how that got to him, or was I, it just a similar one? 
uh, I think it's the fate. I mean, that the the battle over good and evil has happened many times before. I think that's what explains that explains that. Like the no, but he, how did he get? The, how did he get the medallion? Father Carries. That they didn't really know. explain I, that. No, but I, I like the, 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 the kind of brought the whole story full circle. Right. Like, it was fun in the past, it's going to happen again. Right, right. And it was interesting, too, though, like what I was what I was getting at was the scene where you finally, all these things, these elements come together, and you finally got Father Marin and Father Karras together. They put on their uniforms, almost like a superhero putting on a costume, yeah. and then they're going up the stairs, you know, like the cool shot of the two heroes going into battle. And that that right there, I love that scene. And that's when you know, all right, now it's game on. It's it's good versus evil, you know, winner take all. We'll return to 13 Days of Hallowtober after these messages. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host... Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Then, of course, we have Lee J. Cobb, um, and he was uh, Detective, um, what's his name? I forgot his name now. 
Kinderman. Kinderman. Yep, he was Detective Kinderman. And uh, what's funny about Lee J. Cobb is every time we have corn on the cob in the house, I refer to it as corn <laughs> on the Lee J. Cobb, and nobody gets the joke. I but, would. No. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> well, he's a veteran character actor, and his list is long also, so we're just going to give you a couple of his uh, notable films was 12 Angry Men, Exodus. He was in both Our Man Flint and In Like Flint, as well as uh, just a long list of classic TV shows. Although he died, I think, in 76, so he didn't live too long past The Exorcist's release. Yeah. He, was he also on, on, the, on the waterfront as well? He may have been. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have that in front of me, but I think he was. And it, I loved his lines in this. I loved how he's like... He's looking at, at Father Karras, and he's like, you look like uh, John Garfield, you know, the actor. And a little while later, he corrects himself. He's like, no, 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 Sal Mineo, that's who you look like. <laughs> he has that kind of interest, but he doesn't. Like, he, you're not sure whether he, he believes in all that shit at all. So, Well, that, and he's he's like you and me. He's just obsessed with movies, so that's all he's thinking about all the time is our movies <laughs> and actors. and <laughs> yeah. So that was really funny. And then we had um, Jack McGowan as Burke Dennings, who I got the impression that he was uh, Chris's boyfriend because Reagan says to her at the beginning, are you going to marry Burke? Because he's here all the time. And they didn't quite show them together, except mm-hmm. when he was, although he, he was drunk at the party and she's oh, yeah. trying to get him out of there. That was the best thing. He's, he's taunting the German butler. <laughs> <laughs> he's just standing there like teasing him and antagonizing him about World War II and he's like I'm Swiss I'm not German <laughs> yeah there's like some little bits of humor in there which you kind of get unique because the movie is like dire from there on and out so right and it's funny he's a, you know he's another great character actor but our audience may know him best as the paleontologist from the giant behemoth but also or is it behemoth and also, uh, this one, I I knew I recognized him when I watched the movie, and I just couldn't put my finger on it. He was Professor Abronsius in The Fearless Vampire Killers. It was him and Roman Polanski that were neither fearless okay. nor did they kill any vampires. But, yeah, that was him. Oh. <laughs> wow. And then, as you had mentioned earlier, Dick Smith did the makeup. And did you know that Rick Baker has an uncredited role as a special effects assistant in this movie? Uh, I briefly heard something about, about that through um, a Bob Burns uh, documentary because Bob Burns oh, okay. get Rick Baker into the business because um, I guess Rick Baker had all his makeup stuff and he went to the, the makeup guild and they told him he was better off just getting a job doing something else because he's not going to survive in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, so he started doing makeup for Bob Burns, and then Bob Burns went around to just the people he knew and um, got him a gig on The Exorcist. And after that, they were begging Rick Baker to join the guild, but he said, I'd, I'd join, join if I can join uh, based on my rules and what I want to do. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. They kind of yeah, stuck and- it to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. And the makeup here is is phenomenal. I mean, you know, Dick Smith, I, I have Dick Smith's book. I got that when I was a kid about uh, the art of makeup, I think. That's a really good book on how to just do it, you know, do-it-yourself makeup effects. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, I think I might have had it one time. I know I have that on my bookshelf here somewhere. Um, let's see. He um, he's got a lot of credits there too. We did um, one with Dustin Hoffman playing the old man in there. Little Big Man, yep. Little he Big did Man. Little Big Man. He did House of Dark Shadows. He even did Makeup in The Godfather in 72. Oh, wow. As well as Godfather oh. 2. He did The Sunshine Boys, Taxi Driver, Marathon Man, The Deer Hunter, Scanners. It's Alive. Nighthawks. Yeah, I didn't see that on here. I saw something else about It's Alive recently, but uh, this is just a partial filmography yeah. that I'm looking at here. He did Starman. Um, as well as Amadeus, which I think those were Academy. That was an Academy Award-winning film. Oh wow! And the remake of House on Haunted Hill in '99. So he was probably getting up there. I mean, yeah, I'm say so. He was born in 1922, and he died in 2014 at age 92. But this is the man who inspired a lot of makeup artists, like Rick Baker, like uh, Rob Bottin. You know, Tom all Savini. these guys, Tom Savini, yeah. um, all these guys got into the business because of Dick Smith. Yep. And true. I think, I th- I wonder if now Dick Smith was influenced by Jack Pierce from the original Universal horror films. I would say so, because even Rick Baker was inspired by Jack Pierce as well. So. Right. Um. Right. And I think Dick Smith took in, he was one of those guys that was not afraid to just take you in and show you his techniques and tell you yeah, what he's done. Yeah, I think, and, well, like Rick Baker said, he's like, he was very approachable to go to, but you're just a little intimidated first because he's actually working in Hollywood and you're not. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but once you approached him and told him what you were doing was similar, he was willing to take you under his wing. Yeah. Which is, which yeah, is how was, it should be. <laughs> Exactly, you know, and and I think that he was a he was a good guy in that respect. That's really awesome. So let's talk about the music in this movie a little bit. Um, we've got Mike Oldfield's "Tubular Bells" was used as as the theme song, and then I when I was researching the music on this film, the rest of it I, I didn't really know who did it, but I did not realize that the great Lalo Schifrin, who's a favorite of mine, he's done every oh, yeah, you know do. he's done like Mission Impossible and stuff. He composed music for this, but Friedkin hated it so much that he reportedly threw the tape out the window. And that Lalo said that had Friedkin just told him that the producers wanted something different, he could have done it. But it ended up being like one of the worst experiences of his life. <laughs> ah, I love his. I love Lalo Schifrin. He he did all the Dirty Harry movies. He did uh, yep. Bullet with Steve McQueen. Yep. Um, uh, he did Cool Hand Luke. Um, yep. That sucks for him. I'm sorry to hear that. I know, kidding, huh? And apparently, he let's see here. I've got the website up here that talks about it. His, I'm just going to read this off of this particular website here. Saffron's atonal exorcist score was very much in the vein of Christoph Penderecki's, whose cello concerto number one of Polymorphia was used in the film's final edit. It was very much in the vein of the edition of Bernard Hermanesque Fright Stabs. This score was used in an advanced trailer, which some have called the band trailer. As the stories go, this trailer literally made audiences sick when it was shown. It's unclear if the sounds and images were simply upsetting or if the flashing images were actually causing seizures in some viewers. And then according to Schifrin himself, he says, 
when, when asked about, you know, what went on in Friedkin's reaction, he says, the truth is that it was one of the most unex- unpleasant experiences of my life. But I've recently read that in order to triumph in your life, you may previously have some fails. What happened is that the director, William Friedkin, hired me to write the music for the trailer. Six minutes were recorded for the Warner's edition of the trailer. The people who saw the trailer reacted against the film because the scenes were heavy and frightening. So most of them went to the toilet to vomit. The trailer was terrific, but the mix of those frightening scenes and my music, which was also very difficult and heavy score, scared the audiences away. So Warner Brothers executives said to Friedkin to tell me I must write less dramatic and a softer score. I could easily and perfectly do what they wanted because it was way too simple in relevance to what I had previously written. But Friedkin didn't tell me what they said. I'm sure he did it deliberately. In the past, we had an incident caused by other reasons, and I think he just wanted vengeance. This is my theory. (laughs) So, yeah. So something went down, and now I want to hear that music and see that trailer. Yeah, I think I've seen it once. Really? Did you throw up? Uh, just <laughs> I'm kidding. Scrubbing effect is kind of like, like I said, nauseating. Yeah, I that's like I can't do found footage films. Uh, they make me nauseous, except for um, Diary of the Dead. I think that one. I was talking recently to someone about how Romero knew when to put the camera down and you know when to use the. The security camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wasn't wasn't bad. But one um one other thing too. I mean, this whole movie is atmospheric and creepy. I really loved it. Oh, I, I did notice a blooper first of all before I get to what I was going to say. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but um after Father Karras's mother passes away, he's in his apartment and he's all you know despondent. So Father Dyer, the friend, comes over to console him. And at mm-hmm. one point, he's he's helping Karras lay down on the bed. And he takes the cigarette from Karis, and he's like, oh, I'm going to take that. And he puts it in his own mouth and starts smoking it while he's helping you know, Karis take his shoes off and stuff. And then he goes to say goodbye, and they show Father Karis laying there, and he's still got the cigarette in his hand. And yet Father Dyer has it in his hand, too, as he's walking away. <laughs> I'm like, where did this other cigarette magically maybe, come from? Well, maybe he handed it to him. I mean, there's no scene of him handing it to him or something. No, there's no scene. And, and he, Father Dyer still had it with him when he left. Because he oh. was still puffing on it while he's walking away, and oh, Father Karras has one in his hand. Continuity. We're the yeah. continuity people. I know, kidding. I think they were on at lunch that day. Probably. I thought or, that was funny. Or a cigarette break. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> they didn't notice. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, we'll put this in there. <laughs> now, the what I was going to say before that was um, I, one thing I love about this movie, and the version I watched actually had, and I didn't realize it until I saw the scene, it had the extra stuff that was cut out, like uh, Linda Blair crawling down the stairs backwards. Oh, yeah. That's and blood scene. dripping out of her mouth. Yeah. And then um, there's more shots of the scary head that just appears out of nowhere. One time it appears on her stove. And then just every time the flash, I, I I mean, that alone freaked me out when I was younger. And it appears in the attic, too. Yep, in the attic. It appears all over the place. And some of the stuff, even though they added for the director's cut, I prefer the original cut better. It's more yeah. subtle. Yeah, um, yeah. Because some of the stuff you hear, like the, the noises in the attic and her going up there and, and the candle flaming up, uh, you don't know whether... It, that's the demon or is this something else? Right. In fact, my wife was like, why did the candle just do that? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, don't like, like, I don't know. I don't know. But like, Satan likes like, his candles. At first, I was like, oh, I think there's squirrels in the attic or rats in the attic. And I'm like, rats? I'm like, what? 
<laughs> well, that was cool because then she goes up there and she sees all the rat traps with the cheese still in them, yeah. un, you know, untouched. And I, and I kind of always, I kind of always thought that the the demon came around because of several incidents, like the the uh, the sacrilegious thing done to the, the church, um, the Ouija board, and oh, the yeah. priest there. The priest had lost faith in his religion. Right. Right. So and because of those things. That, to me, is the the best part of the movie, though, is the ending when Father Karras finally figures it out. And he. And this is what sold me. When I finally saw the film as a young adult and I watched it all the way through to the end, I understood the ending. When Father Karras says, come into me, come into me, and you see him starting to change, and then for a split second he changes back to Father Karras, and that's he takes that moment to leap out the window and kill himself. And I thought, just thought that was brilliant. It was just, you know, all right, got the demon yeah, inside yeah. yourself. There's nothing I could do. Destroy myself. It destroys the demon, or at least, you mm-hmm. know, dissipates yep. it. And, and the guy, that, the guy, the guy fell down the steps as a real stunt man, and he really did it. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Twice. Oh my god. They 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 covered the steps in uh in rubber, like, like oh, okay, melted rubber over all the steps, and. They got the shot. It was great, but it's like, could you, could yeah, you, can do, you do it one again more for safety? <laughs> and it's just sometimes that the only way you could do it to keep yourself from getting injured. I mean, he was wearing uh, all sorts of padding and stuff. Um, basically, you just let your your body go entirely limp and don't resist as you're falling. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, because oh. I've seen those steps and horrific looking. <laughs> oh, you've seen them in real life. Yeah, yeah, I went up there. Like, and it's it, and the house is not that close to the steps. It, it's, it's a bit further away. I wondered about that. It just seemed like kind of a stretch. It, they they cheated they, the shot, and it's not a big deal. Everybody yeah, the they they never show it in proximity with the steps, so you're never quite clear as to is it really outside her window or not. No, it's actually it's actually a driveway and a, a yard between. The steps in the real house. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's Magic so cool. Movie. One thing I did notice is that the steps cleaned up very well because the first guy, Burke, falls and there's, you know, blood everywhere. And then there's, mm-hmm. it's not when the next character is walking up the stairs. I think, I can't remember if it was Father Dyer or, or the detective. But then when Father Karras goes down, there's a big blood splat at the bottom. And then the next day, it's gone. <laughs> Although it could have been a week later because they were all packed and ready to move and it looked like Reagan was a little healed up. So some time could have passed. It could have rained. Yeah. It could have cleaned could have it. Been so. That, so. Yeah. So um, do you consider this a scary movie? Uh, yes, to me. It's still horrific. Um, and would you recommend this to a younger audience? Uh, very young. Uh, well, um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, um, I mean, like you know, teens to twenties. Oh yeah, it's a fun teen movie. I mean, uh, it was always fun to almost to do it as like a dare, like get your friends to come over, get some popcorn, stay up at night, and and watch this, and and, and see how everybody reacts to it. It's like a fun scare. Right, right. And one of the things we've been talking about on these shows is how a lot of these movies, because they're so iconic with many of their shots and scenes and stuff and music. It, it's gotten into the pop culture to the point where 
younger people go into these movies with a higher expectation than they probably should have. Mm-hmm. And when it doesn't meet that expectation, they're like, well, it wasn't that bad. That wasn't that scary. You know, they, I don't know what, you know, your mind can imagine far more than what anyone can show you in a film. Well, so I think it's also uh, depends on the time period, too, when you see it. Exactly. Exactly. That's another thing we've been trying to talk about is that, you know, for its time, like The Exorcist, nobody had seen anything like this before. It's kind of probably one of the first slow burn horror films where slow burn horror films are, are the normal now, or the new thing. Right, like, right. And it's got a few good jump scares in it. And, you know, I mean, you could argue that, uh, what was it, I Drink Your Blood, which came out in 70, three years beforehand, was probably more terrifying and more gory. But yeah. it just didn't didn't reach as many audience members as this one did. Yeah, I highly highly recommend it. Plus, it's directed by Billy Freakin, and he's a great director. Exactly, exactly. I agree. I recommend The Exorcist. Also, I think younger people should give it a chance. And so, Joe, thank you for joining us today for our discussion about The Exorcist, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Where can the listeners find you online? Do you have a website? Um, we don't have a website at, at the moment, but we, we will have one soon for uh, Dream, X, Dream Apex Pictures. Um, and we have a lot of horror film projects in the way, so um, Excellent. trying to keep keep up the tradition and, and the tradition of uh, Billy Freakin and, and The Exorcist. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Joe. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, you're welcome. Yep, All happy right. Halloween. <laughs> you too. Well, we hope you enjoyed this special edition episode of Then Is Now called 13 Weeks of Hellotober. If you want to chime in on today's show, please send us an email at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And you can also check out our website, havenpodcasts.com. And we have another show called The East Meets the West, where we discuss spaghetti westerns and shaw brothers movies so we hope you check that show out as well as always please leave us a review on itunes so that more people can find us and spread the word about then is now join us again next episode Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media.